Good morning. I'd like to invite our friends headed out to Toddler Nursery, Nursery and Children's Church to be dismissed at this time. Uh, those of you who are remaining, hopefully you still have your copy of God's Word turned to Leviticus chapter 6. I would go ahead and encourage you to put a piece of paper, a finger, or something in uh, Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, I want to pause now as you're kind of doing that and thank uh, uh, Chris for the extensive reading of Leviticus uh, 6, 8 through the end of chapter 8. Thank you so much for that. Um, I, I turned the timer on when he got up and 14 minutes. And so, and so I was like, you know, I'm going to preach. I haven't preached in two weeks. So I'm going to preach for an hour and 30. So that would have been an hour and 45 minute sermon that I read the passage. So I appreciate you covering that for me. That's good. Uh, I also want to thank the guys as everybody's kind of getting to all their different passages for covering for me while we were gone. Uh, uh, Chris for preaching, Chad for preaching. Uh, it's, it's a blessing. Uh, I don't, I think you know, but I don't think that you know, Sylvania, the blessing that it is for whoever the lead teaching pastor to be able to leave and not have to worry at all about what's going to be said from the pulpit while they're gone. Um, I have friends of mine all over the country that they usually have to bring other lead pastors in from other churches to come and preach for them when they're gone because there's no one capable of doing so in the congregations that they have. And it's quite, friends, there, there's a dozen people easy that I can call on when I'm not going to be here. Say, hey, could you preach? Absolutely, I can. And I don't even have to worry about it. And it's, it's a profound blessing that we have as a congregation, one that we should not take for granted or, or kind of dismiss from our minds, but should regularly thank God for the gift that he's given us at our church of people who are able to do that. And along with that, the profound gift of music that he has given us here at our church. Um, uh, I'm really trying to give you time to get to all the different passages um, because you thought Leviticus was long. We're going to cover Hebrews 5 through 10 here in just a minute. And so, I'm not joking. And so, um, and so I was riding in the car with my middle son, Aiden, the other day, and the worship song came on the radio. And he said, hey, I really like this song. I said, yeah, it's a really good one. He said, but man, this is a really bad version. I said, what do you mean? He said, TJ sings this way better. And then the very next song that came on the radio, he goes, man, I really like this song too. He said, but man, this is a bad version too. And I said, why? Does TJ sing it better? He said, no, Carmen does. <laughs> and, and then he said, we should cut an album at Sylvania because all these people on the radio are just bad. <laughs> the people at our church are really good. And I kind of started thinking about it and I was like, wow, he's right. No offense to the people on the radio, but... We haven't cut an album yet, so you got to deal with whatever you get on the radio, you know. We have great musicians who love the Lord and sing great songs. We have great people who teach us in our Sunday school classes and fill the pulpit. And we are richly blessed here at Sylvania. So I missed you guys. All right, so Leviticus chapter 6, verse 8 through 836. What we have here, and the reason why I wanted to cover this section completely together um, and, and have it all read together is because it's one very large unit talking about the priesthood. Because up until this point, we have only had descriptions of sacrifices and how offerings work and the peace offering, the guilt offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and how all these things interact with each other. And what we have not really had is kind of a layout for 
the priesthood that's supposed to be making these offerings for people. What are they supposed to be like? How are they supposed to be consecrated? How are they supposed to be anointed? Which part of the offering do they get to partake in? And which part do they not get to partake in? And what are they supposed to burn up completely? What are they supposed to burn on the first altar? What are they supposed to burn on the second altar? What are they supposed to take outside of the camp and burn because it's not worthy to be on either altar? And we've not really had any of that given to us. And starting in 6.8, running through the end of chapter 8, we get all of that. And so it's actually one very unified thing about the priest, their work at the altar, what they do with the sacrifices, how they purify themselves and, and become anointed so that they can make these offerings. And so it seemed out of place to try to cover all of that in small little segments because it really is one large story about basically what perfects the priest so that he can make an offering on our behalf that is not flawed. Because remember, you, you have to stand before the Lord holy. And so what is it that causes the priest to be able to enter into the presence of God with the offerings of the people and make them in such a way that they are worthy of God's acceptance? That, that's what these near three chapters are about. How do we set these men apart in such a way that they can do this for us? And so I want to talk now, I want to just kind of jump in, and I want to talk about the priest of Leviticus. I want want to talk about what they look like, what's going on here, kind of get the high points of these three chapters, the real technical historical stuff. So first, the very first thing right out the gate is the regulations about what could be eaten and what could not be eaten. So... Going back, if you want to try to remember all the different offerings. When a burnt offering was made, none of it could be eaten. No part of the burnt offering could be eaten. However, the skin of the burnt offering could be kept by the priest to be used by them. And there's a whole thing in there through these first six chapters that talk about that. So no part of the burnt offering could be eaten. The whole thing had to be burned up on the altar. But the skin was removed and the priest got to keep that. So they could use it to make clothes, make blankets, make whatever. They could use it for a variety of things. When it came to the grain offering, it could not be eaten if it was offered for the priest's anointing. So if the priest brought it for himself or Moses brought the first one for the priest to be anointed, for them to be set apart for this work that they were going to do, couldn't eat that one. The whole thing had to be burned up. However, if it was a grain offering that was brought by a different person who was not the priest for a separate purpose, a purpose not for the anointing of the priest, a portion of that could be eaten by the priest. So that's the part that they could eat. So it just depends on who brought it and why they brought it. If it was for the priest or for the anointing of the priest, the whole thing had to be burned up. If it was brought by a lay person, remember how they called it? They said the the people of the field was the real translation, the common people. They could eat a portion of that one. The sin offering, a portion of it could be eaten, regardless of circumstances. If it was a sin offering, there was a certain portion of it that the priest was allowed to eat. If it was a guilt offering, it had the same rules as the sin offering. A portion of it was set apart for the priest to be able to eat, regardless of who brought it and regardless for what purpose. And then if there was a peace offering that was brought, there's two different regulations for it. It could be eaten, 
However, if it was specifically brought as a thanksgiving offering, it had to be eaten on the same day. None of it could be left until the morning. However, if it was brought as a general free will offering, not related to a particular purpose of worship or thanksgiving, but just a free will offering that a person was wanting to bring, it could be left until the morning, but couldn't be left till the third day. You say, why all these regulations about what could be eaten and what could not be eaten? I'm just going to go ahead and tell you the theological consensus as to the why behind all of this is pretty set and pretty sound. I want you to pull in real close and let you in on a big theological secret. Nobody has any idea. Because the scripture never tells us the why of why God set it up this way. He just sets it up this way. We could speculate a lot about why God did it this way. And our speculations would be just that, speculations. We would still have no greater insight as to why God did or didn't do it this way. He could have done it completely opposite of what I just said. And you know what? That would have been the law that God gave. And we would still be wondering, why did he do it like that? We don't know. We really have no clear concept as to the why. What was driving the motivation behind the Lord establishing the law the way that he did. But his wisdom is great and his wisdom is infinite. And this is how he established the system. Now, that's the regulations for eating. And I find it fascinating, and I want to make a point here that is important as we go through, not for necessarily today's sermon, but as we go through the rest of Leviticus, and as we contemplate the weight of sin and the law, I want to make a point here, and I want you to file it away wherever you file away things that you know you're going to need later. In this text that we've just read from chapter 6 through chapter 8, in the middle of chapter 7, we have what are known as the first death penalty infractions in the law of the nation of Israel as found in Leviticus. So you're reading through Leviticus, you're getting this law, and there are some laws in Exodus that indicate also death penalty realities. But here in this reading of the formal law of ceremony, of how we worship God, of how we relate to our neighbors, of how we engage ourselves in civic uh, uh, duties, and a variety of other things that happen in the book of Leviticus. Of all the things that could be the first chief infraction listed for the death penalty. And by the way, I want to go ahead and let you know linguistically, when you're reading through the scripture and it uses the language, they shall be cut off from their people, it doesn't mean banishment. It means they're supposed to be put to death. That's what that means. And the first time that we see that in Leviticus has to do predominantly with making sure that priests do or don't eat or do or don't touch stuff that they are or are not supposed to eat or are or are not supposed to touch. The priest get the first death penalty thing thrown at them. Which, by the way, I just want to kind of throw a little theme out from Scripture. In the New Testament, we're all considered priests. But the work of the priest, until there was an official role of a prophet later in the Old Testament economy, they were the ones who performed the ritual of ceremony of worship, And they were the ones who declared out loud the word of the Lord. That's what they did. And in declaring the word of the Lord, they fulfilled the word of the Lord through the actions that they took here in the temple. And so, 
Moses performs the first priestly duty as also the first great prophet of the nation of Israel. He's the one who anoints Aaron and his sons. He's the one who offers that first anointing sacrifice as if he were a priest, even though he does no other priestly things after that. He's the one who received the word from the Lord. And later we see the priest being the ones to declare the word of the Lord again until the official office of prophet arises. And so what is it that God is basically saying? Those of you who are going to stand and say, thus says the Lord, are going to be judged more severely than those who don't. There's almost a direct quote of that in the New Testament. That you'll be judged twice as much. And so the very first death penalty infraction comes against the priest. Hey, priest, while you're doing this, if you do it wrong, the people need to kill you. Now, I don't want to be overly severe here, but let's, 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 let's feel the weight of that. Priest, it's your responsibility to follow these laws rightly and, 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 and perform these ceremonies correctly so that you and the people can stand righteous before me as a holy God. And people, if your priests do not do it, kill them and get you a priest that will. Oh. You might could say that God takes the worship of himself very seriously. And as Chris prayed earlier after the reading, never has the worship of God been established by how we feel it should be, but rather how God has ordained it to be. And this is how serious this was. And so if you want to see those, Leviticus 7, 19 and 20, Leviticus 7, 25, Leviticus 7, 26 through 27. The first three indications that we have in its uncleanness in regards to offering on behalf predominantly of the priest. And I think that that's substantial and important. And like I said, later in Leviticus, we'll see the weight of it even greater. So file that away. The priest also received a very specific portion for their service. Remember, the priest did not have an allotment of land. They had a place to live, but they didn't have the same sort of land space that the other tribes had. So they, did, they weren't able to raise the same level of cattle and sheep and have large herds and develop large crops. They were able to do small level things, of course. But nothing to the scale that the other tribes were able to do because they did not have an official portion of land like everyone else did. They were only able to properly live in the land based on the gifts that they received at these sacrifices and at these offerings. And so God said, listen, when they bring this stuff into worship and you do all the stuff that you're supposed to do, here's the part you get to have. And notice it wasn't just whatever they wanted. And it wasn't however much they wanted. It was very specific. You can have the right thigh, but not the left. Why? We have no idea. That's just how that worked. There were these regulations of what they could receive and not receive. Now, I want us to start making the connections because we have a lot of ground to cover. And I really don't want to keep us here till 3 o'clock. So... I want, I want us to start making some connections. 
the, the largest part of these near three chapters are about the consecration of the priests for the work that they were going to do. There was all this stuff that had to happen to them, this various anointings and blood coverings and sacrifices and offerings and a a host of other kinds of things. And so I want us to kind of see some of the connection between what happened to these priests and the work of Christ as we get ready to make a transition to see Jesus as our perfect priest. So the priest had to be consecrated for this work. First and foremost, we see that the priests were anointed with oil. As Christ was. Do you remember the story? So Jesus is preparing for his crucifixion. And the woman, the sinful woman as they call her, comes in. And she busts open this vial, this very precious vial of ointment of oil. Pours it all over Jesus' head. And she's weeping. And she's, you know, wiping his hair with her, uh, her, his feet with her hair. And, you know, and of course, some of the disciples start grumbling. Hey, could have sold that and given it away to the poor. Jesus said, she's done a greater thing. She's preparing me for this work that I'm about to do, which is precisely what we see happening here in Leviticus. The priests had to have, had to remove their common clothing and then be clothed with sacred clothing. They had to remove their profane clothing, be clothed with sacred clothing. This is exactly what happens with Christ, his Standard, regular garb is removed from him. It's removed from him while he's on the cross. And when he emerges from the tomb, he's robed in glory and righteousness. This is the picture that we have. There was a purification washing that the priest had to have in Leviticus 6 through 8. We see that Jesus yields and submits himself to the baptism of John, a form of purification washing, just like the priest of old would have done. And John even tells him, you don't need this. And Jesus says, yes, I do. And what reason does he give? Do you remember? For what? For righteousness to be fulfilled. If a priest is going to do priestly work, he has to have a purification washing. And Jesus came into the world to be that. He said, this has to happen. This has to take place. All the things have to be fulfilled. I love that he uses fulfillment language, that righteousness might be fulfilled. This is exactly what Christ came to do. A sin offering had to be made on behalf of Christ. Christ technically did not need this. But a form of sin offering was made on behalf of Christ by way of Mary when she offered the turtle doves after his birth. It's a purification ritual, but it's just as much for the child that was born as for the mother had given birth. And for later, when we get to that in Leviticus... The required sacrifice for that purification was a lamb. Unless you were so poor, you couldn't afford one, and then you could substitute it with birds. And so Mary does not offer a lamb because she's poor. But Mary doesn't need to offer a lamb because she gave birth to one. It's beautiful. We'll get there. And then some of the blood in this of the sacrifice was placed both on the altar and on the priest. What a picture of the crucifixion of Christ. His blood running all over his cross and his own body. He, unlike those priests who had it dabbed on them, was covered in the blood of the sacrifice. And his altar, like the altar of old, had blood covering it, flowing off of it into the ground. 
And I want you to notice a phrase that was said over and over and over again in chapter 6, 7, and 8. Just as the Lord commanded Moses. And this isn't the only time that it does this. Throughout the Old Testament, repeatedly, on repeat, in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we see this phrase, just as the Lord commanded Moses, over and over and over again. Moses doing precisely everything that God had told him to do. And what do we see in the life of Christ? Not my will. Not my will. The Father's will. I have come to do the Father's will. I have come to do precisely as the Lord has commanded. Which is what happens on the cross. Even in his great prayer in Gethsemane, before he's bleeding drops of blood. And he says, he says, is there any other way for this cup to pass? But not my will, your will. And so we see this connection between the old covenant priest of Leviticus and the work that Christ did as our great priest. So I want us to take a moment and I want us to connect what we've read here this morning from Leviticus 6, 7, and 8. This picture of the perfecting of the priest that he might be able to make uh, offering and sacrifice and atonement and worship available to the people. And the greater work of the great true priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Leviticus, we have an origin story of the priests. The Levitical priesthood were so by tribal birth. They were born that way. This is the tribe, God declared it. This is the tribe that the priesthood's going to come from. And if you're going to be a priest, you're going to be born from this tribe. So I ask you to turn there. Hopefully you are there. Leviticus, I mean, uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in, uh, in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes honor uh, to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself as to become a high priest, but he said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another passage, you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the ones able to save him from death. And he was heard uh, because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience in the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him a source of eternal salvation having been designated by a God, a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was not our priest by virtue of his tribal birth. Jesus was our great high priest by the divine reality of who he was. He's a different kind of priest. And the writer to Hebrews goes out of his way to point to the fact that Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the laws of Leviticus and the tribal birth of the Levites. He's far superior to that in every way. So the reason we have an old covenant priesthood is because God established one tribe to be a tribe of priests. The reason we have a new covenant priest in Christ is because God has ordained from eternity past that we would have a great high priest whose source origin was the divine itself. 
And I don't know about you, but I would much rather God himself be my priest than some other individual being a priest on my behalf to get me into the presence of God. What about longevity? How long do they serve as priests? The Levitical priesthood was constantly changing because of the death of individual priests. Turn over, if you will, one page to Hebrews chapter 7. We know that Aaron did not live forever. We know that his sons did not live forever. In fact, we know that Aaron outlived some of his sons. You know the story. Interesting, the whole death penalty thing for priests who don't do it right. Happened pretty quickly, actually. But they had a constant changing. They needed more priests, and they needed other priests, and they needed new priests, and there had to be new anointings and new consecrations. Their priesthood would cease and restart, cease and restart, cease and restart. They had entire generations where there was a priesthood, but they didn't do any of their duties because they were enslaved in an entire other country. You had times where there was a, uh, a, a destroyed temple and it needed to be rebuilt. And they weren't able to do their duties at that time. You had times where they had wanderings, where they were in exile. Their priesthood and what it did and how it lasted was always cut off by the reality of the crushing weight of sin and death that exists in this world. And at any moment, some thing that happened of circumstance could cause their priesthood to cease to be what it was supposed to be. It did not have longevity. It was always on the precipice of being shut down. Not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, it says, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, not designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated... At the altar, that's a beautiful thought about Jesus. For it is evident that our Lord was uh, descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still, for if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has uh, become such not on the basis of law, of physical requirement, but according to the power, listen to this, according to the power of an indestructible life. I love that new song that we sang this morning. It's hard for me to get through that song. I'm glad that people are still writing new songs. But you know, he went into the grave and three days later he came out again. He had the power of an indestructible life. Aaron died and stayed dead. As did every other priest after him. Christ died and rose again. For you have tested of him that you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made, listen to this, hear me, please hear me this morning, friends. Because there seems to be a strong tendency and has been for several, several years now of evangelical 
conservative Gentile Christians attempting to reintroduce the aspects of the law back into their lives. Please hear this warning from the writer to the Hebrews. For the law made nothing perfect. You will not attain to a higher level of righteousness or holiness in some futile effort to keep the Judaic law. That is not where your righteousness comes from. It comes from this priest here. Listen, listen. On the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God, a better hope than the law itself. And inasmuch as it's not without an oath, for indeed there became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever. So much more also Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The longevity of the old covenant priesthood was one generation from extinction always. Lord Jesus Christ will never go extinct. We have a high priest who intercedes for us constantly and continually who never sleeps nor slumbers and is not touched by the weight of death. It's fantastic. It's great. What about their purity? Because these chapters in Leviticus 6-8 through tell us that the Levitical priests needed to be made pure by making offerings for themselves or having offerings made for them by another. An entire chapter is devoted to the offerings that Moses made to consecrate and purify Aaron and his sons because they were not pure to stand before the Lord. I don't know about you, but I would be mildly uncomfortable knowing that some regular guy was going to be the one standing before the presence of God on my behalf. Knowing that some regular guy was going to have to have consecration after consecration after consecration redone for himself just so that he could stand rightly enough before God to stand rightly for me before God. I'd be a little uncomfortable with that. I'm suspecting there were probably some people in this ancient Jewish culture who kind of were smart enough to go, hey, mm, I don't know about this. This makes me a little uncomfortable. There was not a purity that was innate in the priests themselves. They had to be purified. But here in the same text, picking up in verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 7, it says, for it was fitting. Listen to this. Listen to the description of Jesus as high priest. For it was fitting for us. And I'm going to pause here before I get deeper into this point. Some of you are going, why are you doing this, Philip? Because the writer to Hebrews is taking chapters 5 through 10 of Hebrews and basically comparing it to the complete Levitical priesthood system that we see in the book of Leviticus. And he's showing you the superiority of Christ. So I want you to see it this morning. For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above heaven. 
who does not need, listen to this, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Why? Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Friend, I want you to hear something there before we read verse 28. I want you to hear something in verse 27. We understand because we understand the glory of Christ and his perfection and his lack of sinless, uh, his, his lack of sin, his sinless perfection. We understand his lack of need to offer sacrifices daily for himself because he's perfect, flawless, pure, innocent, all the things that are said here. But did you catch the distinction that is made when he offers himself up for his people like the priest used to do the offerings on behalf of the people in the Old Testament. Guess what? So Bob is out in the field. Bob commits some sin or gets some sin pointed out to him. Bob shows up to the priest. He makes an offering for that sin. It's accepted. He's purified. Bob goes out. He goes to sleep. He wakes up the next day and Bob sins again out in the field. And so what does Bob do? He goes back to the priest and he offers another offering. And you know what? Even if the priest is staying pure, Bob is not. And the priest has to keep making sacrifices over and over and over again for Bob. And in the old covenant reality, the priest had to keep making sacrifices over and over and over again for himself. We know Christ needs no sacrifice for himself. He's perfect. But friends, when he made that ultimate sacrifice for sin, he never had to make another one again for you. If you are his people, he has made you holy. No one has to die for you again. Even if you continue in your sin, and you need to repent before the Lord, sacrifice does not have to be made because Christ has declared you holy. Friends, it is not the same. Notice what it says in verse 28. It says, For the law appoints men as high priests, and they are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. Man, that's great. Let's talk about the place of service. Where are these men supposed to do this work that they do? We read here in chapter 6, 7, and 8 that the Levitical priesthood served in that which is and or was temporary. I love how the writer to the Hebrews continues to reference the tabernacle and not the temple. Because the temple was a bit more of a permanent structure. Couldn't pick it up and move it around like you could the tabernacle in the wilderness. But we know full well that the temple itself is not permanent. Destroyed twice. Not permanent. Nothing made with hands. Hear me, friends, this morning. This is like a side sermon and for free. Nothing made with hands is permanent. There's a lot of striving and a lot of straining and a lot of stressing over things that will fade away. Nothing made with hands is permanent. And so this place that they serve, this tabernacle, especially the picture of the tabernacle, they could put it together set it up, God would tell them to move somewhere else in the desert, they'd break it down, they'd move to where he told them to go, they'd stop, they'd set it up again. It was about as impermanent as you could think. There was no permanence to this place, but I want you to see this work of what Christ does. Next chapter, chapter 8, verse 1 of Hebrews. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat where? In a tabernacle? In a temple? In a king's palace? No, he has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of majesty 
in the heavens. Permanent. It's not going to fade away. It's not going to get torn down. It's not going to get overthrown. It's the right hand of God in His throne room of majesty. Notice what it says. He is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary that that high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer gifts according to the law, who serve in a copy, listen to this, a copy and shadow of heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the temple, see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. And this is not what today's sermon about, but I feel the need to interject this one line that will probably get me more lunches than anything else. When people ask me all the time, Philip, why in your eschatological view of how the end's going to work, do you not believe that there's going to be a rebuilt temple? This right here. It is a copy and a shadow of heavenly things and completely unnecessary because of the work that Christ has done. He now sits in the one that was pitched by God. The true and real sanctuary that will never be overthrown. Can never be torn down. Rome cannot come in and burn this one to the ground. It stands forever because it is the right hand of God's majesty. It's fantastic. And he has obtained a more excellent ministry. By as much as he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on his promises. So the place of service, they served in a temporary tabernacle and then a longer standing temple for a period of time, neither of which exists anymore on our earth, especially after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christ serves in the true sanctuary, in the true tabernacle, in the dwelling presence of the the Most High God, where he invites us in because that veil has been torn down to serve there with him as we are seated in, in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, right now. It's fantastic. Place of service, it's amazing. What about this covenant that gets established in this priesthood? You see in Leviticus 6, 7, and 8, there's the establishment of this covenant ritual of how you can stand rightly before God. And the Levitical priest served under a covenant that was, listen, this is going to bother people, but it's it's stated repeatedly over and over and over again throughout the Scripture. The Levitical priest served under a covenant that was intentionally faulty. Say, Philip, you shouldn't say things like that. Well, then tell God not to say it. What does it say at the end of the Old Testament when we get to the minor prophets? What does God not desire? I have no desire for your what? Your offerings, your sacrifices, or your feast days. What do I want from you? I want a transformed heart. I want the tabernacle that's within to be purified. I long for justice and mercy and compassion to flow from my people. I could care less about your sacrifices. I don't want those. A broken 
and contrite spirit. This is what I desire. So let's take a look. Let's, let's look at the supremacy of this covenant. It's, it's incredible. 8, chapter uh, 8, picking up in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, if it had not been intentionally faulty, if it had been without fault, there would be no occasion sought for a second covenant. For finding fault with them, this is God speaking now from the Old Testament. Quote it here. Notice what it says. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new, even better translation, better covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall teach, uh, not, uh, and then they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Hear me friend. In this Levitical covenant that was set up that we just read about in Leviticus six through eight, God remembered their sin continually. That's why they had to make sacrifices continually. In the Levitical covenant, there was never a forgetting of sin. There was just the constant reminder of the smell and sound of death calling to people's minds every day, moment by moment, we are wretched sinners. That's all they had. And when Christ came and died a death once for all, He established a much better covenant, one in which God now looks and says, I don't even remember that you're a sinner anymore. What? Because I have forgotten your sin. I have removed it from me as far as the east is from the west. And I will remember it no more. Friends, if you don't know, that's a way better covenant. That's a way better deal. Hey, would you like to raise a bunch of animals and a bunch of crops and constantly be bringing some of them to slaughter them and have blood thrown on an altar because every day you remember how wretched of a wicked, horrible sinner that you are and you live your whole life hoping that the priest is doing it right and that he's not also a wretched, horrible sinner and that somewhere in the midst of all this bloodshed, God might be kind enough to you to actually like maybe forgive you completely of your sins? Or would you just have to have like one high priest who's also your sacrifice make a sacrifice for sin that's so superior and great that God himself doesn't even remember that you're a sinner anymore? It's superior in every way. Which leads us to the supremacy of the sacrifice itself. I'm not going to read it. But if we were to take the time to read Hebrews 9 and 10, both chapters, here's what you would find. In the Levitical system, 
The Levitical priests continued to regularly enter the place of the altar, making a multitude of sacrifices of various kinds for worship and for sin. That's what they would do. That's what we just read in 6 through 8 of Leviticus. Here's how you're supposed to do it, and here's how you're supposed to burn it, and here's how you're supposed to pour it out, and this is what you're supposed to eat, and this is what you're not supposed to eat, and this is, this is what it's supposed to and you're supposed to just do this all the time. And there's a whole bunch of different ones you're supposed to do, and there's a bunch of regulations about how you're supposed to do them just all the time. Just blood, 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 blood. Blood and entrails everywhere. I had to say it for my wife. She's like, I'm so tired of hearing the word entrails. Right, we had to throw it out there one more time. Blood and entrails, it's all over the place. It's what we got. Now, what do we have with Jesus? Jesus entered through a better place and offered a better sacrifice. And here in Hebrews 9 and 10, it says he did it once for all. Never to make a sacrifice again. Say, Philip, though, I, I know I still sin. Don't need another sacrifice for it, though. That's how great the supremacy of the sacrifice is. It is so great that even if you sin after it has happened, it has the power to still cover your sin. Here we are 2,000 years later after the actual death of Jesus, and he's still covering our sin. You couldn't go 20 minutes in the Old Covenant without having to get sin covered again. And here we are, billions of people later from the death and resurrection of Christ, and our sin is still covered by the weight of His glorious sacrifice. Because, friend, as great as your sin is, Christ's death and resurrection is greater still. It's amazing. Which leads us to an everlasting salvation. Friends, the hope of salvation offered in the Old Covenant was temporal. It's temporal. I got to come and offer another sacrifice. I got to come and offer another sacrifice. I got to come and offer another sacrifice. I I might even have sins that I didn't even know I did. And once I figured out that I did them, I got to come and offer another sacrifice. The Levitical priest's offering was a constant reminder of sin. I wonder what it was really like living in, near, and around the tabernacle. The sound of those dying animals and the smell. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've been around butchered animals. There's a stench to it that starts to set in. And you know what? Burning grain offering probably is a little bit more of a pleasant smell than burning dead flesh. Just I'll throw that out there. There was a stench in the camp of a reminder of their wretched estate. And it was constant. Constant. But not so with Christ. The work of Jesus, according to... Mm, the work of Jesus, according to Hebrews 9 and 10. He covers sin forever. And his death is a constant reminder of forgiveness 
and grace that is everlasting. There's no stench of death with Christ. There's a beautiful aroma of mercy. Oh, it's so fantastic. So to close, I know we went along this morning, but to close. The Lord Jesus Christ is more than just the fulfillment of the priesthood. He is far superior to the priesthood in every way. He not only fulfills the old covenant, but he establishes a new and better covenant. A covenant in which his sacrifice fully and completely alters the condition of the recipient of that covenant. No longer do those under His grace need to long for redemption. Rather, they have been fully redeemed by the superiority of the work of Christ, which gives us confidence. I close with these words from Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, because all this is true, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Pause, pop quiz. Who could go in the holy place in the old covenant? The high priest. And eventually, when could he go there? Once a year. On what day? By by just a remarkable connection. The day of atonement. One guy, one time a year for one sacrifice. What did this just say? We have confidence to go into the holy place. All of us. And that's, that's better. By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. What is the veil? That is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, the priest king, he rules the house and he is the priest. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And what should we do with this? Hear me this morning, friends. What should we do with this? It's going to blow your mind what we as believers should do with this for each other. And let us consider... How to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. Friends, you want to see the great picture of how superior this covenant is in every way to the one that went before? All you have to do is look around. Because back then when they all gathered together, it was mostly a gathering together to have a a, a sacrifice and an offering made for their sins to be forgiven. And now when we all gather together, it's not so our sins will be forgiven. It's because our sins have been forgiven. And we don't come together crippled and broken 
and drained out and fearful of God, we come together celebrating and worshiping with full hearts of gratitude, thanking God for what He has already done, carrying us from a place of death to a magnificent place of life. And when we turn from one pew to the next, we don't see somebody holding the offering that they're bringing, waiting in line for their turn to be forgiven. When we look from pew to pew, we see the faces of those who, like us, have been redeemed fully by Christ. And that, friends, should give us confidence and should cause us to stir each other up to good works and should drive us to want to be together, doing life with one another, fighting this good fight together because, friends, Christ has already won the victory for us. We just get to celebrate His championship. Having done nothing except acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And Christ, being a far superior high priest in every way, has forgiven us of our sin. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank You. Thank you so much for the greater, more superior, more amazing, more fulfilling, more merciful, more compassionate, more gracious reality of Jesus Christ as our perfect high priest. Father, there is nothing of the old covenant priesthood that can even begin to rival the amazing nature of your son, Jesus. Father, thank you that those who are in Christ, when we are seen by you, are seen as those who have been forgiven. We are not in need of forgiveness. We are not in need of redemption. We are not in need of a sacrifice to be made for us. For Christ has made a sacrifice once for all, and you have declared us holy and righteous and clothed with the glory of Christ. He is the skin of our burnt offering, and we are wrapped in Him. Father, for those who are here today, and they have a deep longing to experience the sort of freedom and forgiveness that they have heard about today, but they know that it is not theirs. Father, I pray that by Your grace and for Your glory, You will open their darkened eyes. Remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and, and compel them to cry out to Christ, the great high priest who offers forgiveness. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together this morning. Amen.